In 2017, the delivery of the Uluru Statement from the Heart provided renewed hope for the treaty movement and reignited conversation around our nation's shared past. But where are we now? How will the momentum of the Uluru Statement be maintained in 2020 and beyond? And what is the importance of understanding and knowing our histories in this process? Joining me to discuss this further are Teela Reid, Gunnar Maynard and Thomas Mayer. Teela is a Wiradjuri and Whalewan woman and a lawyer and was previously Australia's female Indigenous youth delegate to the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. Thomas Mayer is a Larrakia man who has been an official for the Maritime Workers Union and has turned his advocacy skills to the Uluru Statement. He is the author of Finding the Heart of the Nation, The Journey of the Uluru Statement Towards Voice, Treaty, Truth. And Gunnar Maynard is a lawyer who was named 2019 NADOC Apprentice of the Year as a result of a German language internship program he completed at one of the world's largest international law firms. Thank you all for being here tonight on Speaking Out. I've asked each of you to prepare an overview of your perspectives on these themes. So let's begin with you, Teela. Uh, with respect, I guess, to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the way in which I became involved in the movement was back in 2016 where there were some meetings conducted prior to the constitutional dialogues that were held around Australia. I guess some of the main um, messages behind the Uluru Statement is this, that it's a call for a First Nations voice to Parliament to be enshrined in the Constitution and then the establishment of a Makarata Commission to enable treaty and truth-telling amongst First Nations peoples with the Australian Parliament. I guess it was really important to recognise that this is not the first invitation to be heard. There have been many petitions in the past, such as the Baronga Statement, the Larrakia Petition, you know, letters to the kings and, and things like that that First Nations peoples have issued to the parliament. And I think one of the most important things to remember is that the calls for a voice and treaty and truth-telling are not new calls. So the Uluru Statement was issued to the Australian people in May 2017. But it's interesting to note that in 2015, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders uh, gathered at Kirribilli and issued directly to the government the Kirribilli Statement. And this statement was really profound in terms of it said directly that symbolism at that point in time had been rejected and would not be supported by First Nations Australians. As many of us would know, there's been the campaign by Recognise that did push for constitutional recognition, but for the period of time that Recognise was a campaign, there was no real idea of how First Nations ought to be recognised. So what we know as of 2015 um, in the context of other 
parliamentary report such as the expert panel on constitutional recognition is that right up until that point in time, First Nations peoples had never been asked directly how they ought to be recognised. And that was one of the most fundamental turning points in the last decade in 2015 with the Kirribilli statement that said any way forward must include the First Nations of Australia. We also knew in 2015 that any tinkering or symbolism such as a preamble, such as amending or changing the race power that was altered in 1967 would not go far enough or nor would it be supported by First Nations. So at that point, the Kirribilli Statement was really the catalyst for establishing the Referendum Council. And I think it's important at this point to note the leaders, particularly in the Aboriginal community, who really took charge of that process, which is, of course, Professor Megan Davis, who's the brains behind the design of the constitutional dialogue process, and also in particular, Arnie Pat Anderson, who was just formidable right throughout this constitutional process, but also in all of the other things that Anipat achieves in the community. So 2015 was the catalyst for the way forward for First Nations. And I guess that's important because as a result of that, the dialogues that then were conducted around the country involved a cross-section of the First Nations community. So what the Aboriginal leadership understood at that point was in order to build a consensus in the way forward and how we ought to be recognised that we first must get consensus and a cross-section of that First Nations community. And in Australia, this was unprecedented in the sense that there were traditional owners that had to be 60% of the dialogues, 20% Aboriginal leaders in that community and 20% Aboriginal organisations. So that cross-section clearly cut through the Aboriginal community in terms of how we build a robust and reliable process that can shift the nation forward on this issue and not divide and conquer the idea or movement for change. That kind of brings me to the point where I became involved. I was the working group, a working group leader, I should say, on Section 5126, the race power at the Sydney Constitutional Dialogue. At each and every site across Australia, the dialogues debated five different models of change, I guess, or reform. And those were firstly a preamble or a statement of acknowledgement just inserted in the Constitution, which doesn't really have any legal effect, but more a little bit like poetry. The second is an agreement-making process or treaty-making, in other words. The third is amending or changing Section 5126, the race power. And the fourth was a prohibition on racial discrimination. And finally, it was the voice. So in each of these dialogues, the cross-section of, of the Aboriginal community were able to debate and instantly get legal advice of some of Australia's leading constitutional lawyers, but also the leadership of our own grassroots people in terms of building that consensus and debating those particular models. 
These were not easy debates. They were actually really, really hard. They were heated, they were emotional, and personally, from a younger First Nations perspective, it was it was life-changing for me to see, I guess, the sense of, you know, resilience amongst our elders and our leaders to fight for change. But at the same time, despite how difficult the fight was, that this in terms of the debates that were going on in the dialogues, wasn't just about First Nations. The selflessness of of our mob was going, look, this is a profound gift to the country. And eventually those debates culminated at Uluru and the statement was conceived with respect to that moment in time at Uluru, the reading of the statement and how profound that was and then the people's movement from that moment because there's been so much work that has been done as a result. We know the political class instantly dismissed that hard work in those constitutional dialogues. They instantly labelled it a third chamber and dismissed that and I think that's what really broke my heart was to see so many of our elders work so hard to provide this beautiful gift to the Australian people and our hopes dashed like that, you know, at the stroke of a pen in the leak of the media was heartbreaking. But there's a lot of good things to be said, I think, about the movement despite that. So it's been a three-year unfunded campaign now and it has been really building momentum. I think that the current Australian climate and what we're experiencing now in the community just reveals how deeply flawed the system is in terms of listening to the First Nations of Australia. If they simply listened to the wishes and the hopes of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders and old people, just how profoundly different this country would operate, not from, you know, for example, an economic point of view, but from a compassionate, humane point of view. So I'll just leave that there. Well, that Um, sounds like a good point to bring Thomas in. What a great segue. (laughs) Thomas, can you share your perspectives with us? I guess I'll begin with where my perspective comes from. I was an activist and a wharfie for a long time, uh, 16 years before becoming a union official in 2010. So I was well educated and practiced in organising, I suppose, collective power and building leverage and using that leverage to achieve not only the wages and conditions for ourselves as workers on the wharves and as seafarers, but also for various social justice struggles, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander advocacy, which makes me really proud to be a unionist. So that's where I come from. And as an activist, getting involved in community issues, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues, I felt a lack of structure and coherency compared to where I'd come from, from the trade union movement. You know, like we could have so many different voices at the same time on a solution for a problem We were so well divided by corporations and government, anyone interested in exploiting our land. All of this made our position weaker, I came to realise in that. And it's obvious when you think of all of the protests that we have tend to be in reaction to bad decisions after they're made. One of the most appalling things was for everything that we were doing since around 2015, It was obvious that these decision makers that were harming our people were not being held accountable for those decisions. 
And so it was around the time that I was invited to constitutional dialogue that I was wondering what we could do better to advocate for our position as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. So when I went to Uluru, it was with all of that in mind, you know. Obviously, the way that the government treats us, the way they don't listen, it's all written in the statistics that we should all be ashamed of in this country. Every non-Indigenous person should be ashamed of those statistics. And when the Uluru Statement was read for the very first time, it was an incredible moment. And it was something that should be recognised for the process that was behind it, that Teela talked about, the legitimacy, the difficult debate, and most importantly, the wonderful consensus at the end and how it was endorsed with standing acclamation. And so the Uluru Statement is that coming from a campaigner's perspective, it's a golden opportunity for us to make change. We have the problems that a majority of Australians now realise that must be fixed. We have a national consensus from First Nations people for the first time. We have a beautiful canvas that this consensus is written on in eloquent words, the Uluru Statement, and the artwork by Anangu Law, Minrini Kulicha, Charmaine Brumby, Happy Reed and Selina Kulicha has huge symbolic significance and cultural significance in that it's the song lines that come from the different directions, north, east, south and west, and come together at Uluru, those different stories, the Chukupa. And it's a beautiful thing to look at and to hear, and it's compelling. And so from my perspective, with that consensus, with this amazing artwork and powerful words, it's an opportunity to make change. And it would be an incredible shame if we don't go at this opportunity with all vigour and see that it is achieved. I'm really passionate about what it calls for, voice treaty truth, and especially voice, given I think it is the key reform. It's certainly the priority reform that came out of Uluru, in that it is that structure that is absent. John Howard destroyed ATSIC for a very good reason. I was on the wharf when John Howard tried to destroy the union movement by attacking my union, the MUA, and that was all about divide and conquer. He failed at that, but he did succeed at dividing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, destroying that structure when he repealed ATSIC in 2005. And so the voice I see is really important to rebuild that structure, but particularly constitutional enshrinement of that voice because it learns the lessons of the past, going back to Fred Maynard, all the way back to the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association. Fred Maynard was a president, a wharfy. That representative body, that structure that was built, was destroyed by the authorities through to ATSIC and through to the Congress of First Peoples. And so the constitutional enshrinement of the voice is extremely important. It's about protecting what we build. Constitutional enshrinement will also give it the mandate of the Australian people because it will need to pass a referendum, a very difficult task, but we must have the courage to take that task on and achieve it because we know that every other representative body is destroyed. But that mandate to speak for our people and be heard, the mandate of the Australian people that politicians must hear it. And although it won't be a third chamber, it won't have a right to veto the power of this voice is in its collectivism, it's in its structure and being able to choose our representatives, representatives that are accountable to the people that choose them, and then being able to have the political power, that authority to speak for us and then campaign for the many other changes that we need to achieve 
and also to keep those decision makers accountable, which is not happening right now. And so I even think of it when our recent challenges, if we had a voice, would the environment have been treated so badly all this time if we had been listened to, if we had a, a more effective ability to affect decisions made about our country? If we had a voice, the problems with native title, would we be able to campaign to change that legislation and improve it and make it less divisive amongst our families and give it the right to veto decisions that are made on what affects our country? And on coronavirus, the present crisis, to have a much more effective way to make sure that those resources were there, that the issues of chronic disease were dealt with before we reached this point where we are now the most vulnerable people in this pandemic. And so I think the voice in the constitutional enshrinement is really, really important. The government is still not there, though the door is still open. And even if they tried to close it, we would prize it open because we cannot face this opportunity. Now, even through this, we're looking at ways to continue to educate more people. Not enough people know about it, both black and white. That's the work ahead of us. Keep the conversation going. Gana, I might ask you now if you could perhaps present your perspectives. Okay. I guess my perspective is kind of unique in that I studied history and law at university, so I'd come at the issues from that perspective. And also, I was very lucky to grow up in a family that was completely dedicated to education, completely committed to the importance of history, and had these ancestral icons like my great-grandfather, Fred Maynard. And from that perspective, I guess, for me, there's a beautiful simplicity to the Uluru Statement, which is that it calls for three distinct but interdependent and inextricable reforms, a voice to parliament, a Makarata commission to make treaties, and a truth-telling commission, which might be undertaken by the Makarata Commission. Those three broad reforms drive at three kind of bases, or they derive from three bases, which is that sovereignty, the affirmation of Aboriginal sovereignty and Torres Strait Islander sovereignty in this country, a recognition that sovereignty was never actually ceded and there's still a live issue as to who has the authority to make the rules by which we live our lives in this country. Keeping that issue live rather than surrendering it or ceding it is a really integral part of the reforms from my perspective. The other big points are the um, social inequities, the social difficulties that any sort of reform is really trying to address here. And I think for me that's particularly important that there are inequities in this country that are drawn, whether we like it or not, along lines of race. And those lines have been generated by social historical facts that aren't able to be addressed without coming to terms with the truth of this country's history and implementing serious structural reforms. And then I suppose, relatedly, the third basis from my perspective is still about reconciliation. I realise in some circles that word's almost become unfashionable, but it remains true that there's a generosity in the Uluru Statement in that it's about extending a hand to the rest of Australia, who, realistically speaking, now not everybody feels this way or is willing to admit that they feel this way, but have to come to terms with a sort of original sin in how this country was settled. And without actually accounting for what's happened and trying to implement reforms to address the consequences of it, I don't see how reconciliation could be seriously countenanced. And I suppose when you think about those three reform points and the bases from which they're derived, 
and you apply the current context of them, and I'm really talking here about 2020, I suppose, you reflect on the continuing frustration that people have with the way the system is set up. I was recently up in the Kimberleys working for the Kimberley Land Council in Broome, a recurring frustration with how native title processes can actually divide communities, that getting land rights can traumatize people. The experiences required by the native title legislation to be dredged up before the courts can be very traumatic and can actually create division among people. I was sitting in a, a meeting with a recently formed prescribed body corporate and I was sitting there with a lawyer from the KLC who was explaining the rules that were governing the issue that we were discussing. And he, this director was getting more and more frustrated. He said, we need to start talking about sovereignty. We need to start talking about structural change, which is true. We know that the rule book of native title has been written to serve certain ends and not many of those ends end up helping the people who are the holders of native title, the claimants of native title. And related to that, I suppose, and in the more specific context of the Uluru Statement is the frustration with the uh, politics of procrastination, this constant, well, we'll ask Aboriginal people or we'll conduct an inquiry into what Aboriginal people want and we'll have this beautiful document written up and then we won't actually implement any reform because it's too hard. I think there's a bit of apathy or frustration about that, especially among older generations and I suppose the challenge for younger people, myself included, is to understand these reforms have been attempted to be put in motion before and have failed because of government inaction. And it's something that we need to continue to press if we're going to see any success here. You can't expect this to be easy, I suppose. And then the final bit of context that I was thinking about, the political climate at the moment doesn't instill one with great hope. And it's unfortunate that that's so, but it's something that I suppose we're going to have to confront when you look domestically, despite the fact that we face serious environmental crises in our time. It seems that our democratic machine is going to allow a resolute conservatism to prevail over serious structural environmental reform and concomitant social reform as well. If you think about the way that the last federal election was run on, on wage growth, you wonder whether the kind of structural change in the Uluru Statement is going to find an environment that's not completely hostile to it. So I'm, I'm very aware of the challenge that lies ahead in that respect. Teela, Gana talks about the challenges around the implementation of the agenda set forward in the Uluru Statement. From your perspective, what are those challenges and how can we confront those challenges? I think the first obvious challenge is that in order to achieve the voice and the mandate through the consensus of the Uluru Statement requires a referendum process. And that's clearly a challenge that simply hasn't changed and will not change from the moment the Uluru Statement was conceived. And that's, you know, a structural issue and it requires a double majority of the Australian people to vote yes in order to achieve it and give it that public legitimacy. The other issue that I think is quite obvious as well is the political climate. As we know, as Blackfellas, politics changes rapidly 
political priorities change rapidly, but I, I really do think that we have to maintain the vision of hope within the Uluru Statement. Like this is a profound opportunity to shape and change a nation. It's the most positive thing that we have right now to really hang on to in Australia, that despite the difficulties that we're facing in an unprecedented pandemic, that there will be better days. There will absolutely be better days. And I just think that the challenges of achieving the Uluru Statement, while they're real, such as a referendum and how we enable it to become a political priority, should not shift and kind of diminish our hopes that we will ever achieve it. One of the things that we have learned as activists just you know, traveling the entire continent is that there is a lust for change and hope amongst the Australian people. People are really tired of politicians not listening to them. We've seen it with the bushfires, you know, at that point in time, you know, it, it was on the agenda. And people were saying, why are we not listening to First Nations? Suddenly we got a bit of rain and here we are in this world pandemic. And when that kind of, you know, swept across the country and the world and kind of started to infiltrate Australia in the last two, three weeks or so, the first thing, the first priority for me was our elders. We must maintain hope and protect our elders at all costs. And I think that that's a very different way of thinking about the world as opposed to Western thinking. You know, it's it's not unusual that media will say, in this instance, um, you know, a younger person's life was chosen to be saved instead of an older person's life. And I just think if that really came down to it in this country, that it is our elders who we must be absolutely protecting at all cost in our community. So I think the challenges, you know, while they're real and while they have come at us, you know, quite rapidly in the last at least six months or so with what's happening in Australia and politics, the one thing that we know, the common thread is this, that there is very little faith in our politicians to do anything right in the interest of the Australian people from a compassionate perspective. And I think that that will not change unless there is profound systemic change. Here in New South Wales, we're virtually in lockdown and we're looking, if we break the rules, we're looking at a six-month penalty in prison or an $11,000 fine or both. And I just think that in terms of the way in which laws are created and made, that they must take into account the perspectives and interests from a First Nations perspective. And if we're able to do that, we're able then to see the world and implement laws and legislation that is, you know, looking at the interests of the vulnerable, that is looking at the interests of our old people. And it's not prioritising the economy over our existence. So I think, you know, while it's a hard time for all of us, that the Uluru Statement is 
the one piece of hope right now that Australians can uh, hang on to. And I just, you know, in terms of that, there are a lot of our medical professionals on the front line of this particular, you know, people have been categorising it as a war and it is an invisible war in terms of the virus. But in terms of our First Nations peoples and all the medical professionals, I think that we also need to be keeping them in our hearts and minds in terms of doing the right thing. You know, in order to do the right thing, you don't necessarily need to pass legislation that basically criminalises people. And I think that's a key point in how a voice could affect decisions. Thomas, what role do non-Indigenous people have to play in the truth-telling process? Well, in the truth-telling process, there's 97% of them and there's only 3% of, of us. The truth hasn't truly been embraced by them yet. And so all of the non-Indigenous people that have accepted the invitation need to get out there and get the rest of Australia to do so. I mean, going back to the challenges, the challenges for us are far greater and much more harmful to our people if we don't get this done. And that's a challenge, you know, and change that the whole of Australia needs. I mean, we talk about drought. There's been a drought of visionary leader in this country for, geez, a bloody long time. And it's only us that can change that. So the non-Indigenous people need to get behind this movement. Gana, do you think Australia's ready for a truth-telling of our shared histories? Oh, I'm kind of doubtful. I started university a couple of years after the history wars in Australia had subsided, although they never really went away. And the continuation of this black armband, white blindfold battleground of history is just so intractable that you wonder what the solution is to it. Now, I know the interesting thing about truth-telling in the Voice Treaty Truth schema is that the way that it's been contemplated is quite a localised approach to truth-telling, focusing on local uh, historical societies to conduct work on the ground rather than a hegemonic kind of approach, a centralised commission conducting all of the work by itself. That might be a solution, but I am kind of wary about, despite what I said about Australia's need to come to terms with its history, whether the majority of the population that Thomas was referring to are actually ready to do that. Yeah, just on truth-telling, if that's right, Larissa. Of course. I mean, on truth-telling, the truth has been told for a very long time, right? We've got history books going way back. We've got royal commissions full of truth-telling. But what really is lacking for truth-telling is the voice to use the truth, the voice to use the truth to get the recommendations and all the reports and the parliamentary um, commissions and all the rest get those recommendations implemented to use it to make changes to so many things. The Mm. truth is leverage. It's a tool. It's what must be used. It already exists. People know the truth now. Whether they choose to accept it and embrace it for the need of change or whether they choose to deny it, the truth is something that we can use. We just need to get that voice, that structure the authority and power to use that to make the changes that we know we need to make. Just finally tonight, each of you have expressed a great deal of passion and commitment and energy to these issues. And I was just wondering if each of you could share with us where you get that strength from and what motivates you. And we might start with you, Gana. I'd say from my family, certainly. Family and friends as well. 
been very lucky to be brought up and educated among people who are all so thoughtful and committed and passionate to what they do. What about you, Thomas? Oh, it's love and empathy. I mean, uh, well, we must fight for change, you know, because people that we love, our own people are being destroyed by the lack of a power in this system. You know, you must feel for people that are worse off for you than yourself. I mean, that's what drives me. And that moment at Uluru, you know, there was so much emotional investment. You know, we had to dispel our disbelief that we can't make change and believe in something. And to reach that amazing consensus when so many naysayers had said that blackfellas couldn't reach a consensus. And when some people were, you know, mischievously or dishonestly trying to tear it down all the way along, yet we achieved that wonderful moment, that huge consensus on something that is very achievable yet very powerful. I mean, that moment really drives me along as well. We must achieve it. And last but not least, Teela, what motivates you and keeps you strong? Like Gunnar, most certainly if that inherent, you know, fierce fire that we've learnt from our families, particularly, you know, along the eastern seaboard where we have really borne the brunt of so many, you know, moments in time of, you know, the original invasion to today. And I just think our families have always been at the front line of that. My grandfather um, would march me off to lands council meetings from the moment I could walk. So I recall those moments. But for me as well now as, you know, a lawyer, but also with the experience of growing up in my community, I do feel a sense of responsibility to my people to use this knowledge and combine it with activism to create the change that we all need. And that's just not from First Nations perspective, but I think that that's from an Australian perspective, that the statement was, you know, a great gift to the Australian people and that that's something now that we we must fight for and in our generation in the time is now. What a great note to end on. Thank you guys so much. My guests this evening have been lawyers Teela Reid and Gunnar Maynard and author Thomas Mayer.